Popular demand when we went to our retreat, I think um, we had a lot of feedback and there was some uh, requests to uh, do lectures that were more um, basic and covered the core content a little bit better. So um, in light of that, I'm starting a new lecture series that's just titled The Basics. <laughs> and we're going to go through the core curriculum and talk about the basics. I'm going to pick a basic topic from each month and, and present it to you guys and that way uh, that way we'll have uh, everyone on the same playing field. Uh, for some of you this may be very basic, especially for the faculty, but I think um, it's good to kind of talk about some stuff um, that we all assume that you all know um, because we've been doing it for a long, long time, but, uh, but it's, it's, you know what they say about assuming. so. Anyways, I have no disclosures. Um, here's what you're going to learn today. You're going to master the key components of the primary survey. I know we've had several lectures that kind of have spoken about the primary survey. Dina's lecture earlier this morning was excellent. Kind of um, almost feel like this would be a great um, following lecture um, to kind of really enhance and, and hammer home those points. You're going to master the key components of the secondary survey. So what is the secondary survey? We talk about it all the time. We do it all the time, but let's just learn it the right way. Um, I just recently was certified as an ATLS instructor, so I uh, went through the instructor course. Um, so I've read that manual a couple of times. And so it's, it's very interesting, even for me, having done it for you know, 10 years or so, um, the things that I learned um, that are actually in the textbook versus how kind of real life works in the emergency department. It's not to say one is better than the other, but at least you should learn what's uh, officially our standard of practice, which is ATLS. You're going to familiarize yourself with critical actions in traumatically injured patients. So what do you really need to do when you need to do it? And so that's kind of the key. Now remember ATLS is really made for folks um, who are not at a level one trauma center. Um, so this is when you're all going to be, wherever you choose to practice in the community, whether it's close by or farther away, um, it's a very formulaic way to kind of go through uh, and make sure that you cover the essentials before you move on and start thinking about ABGs and all sorts of other stuff. So remember the essentials and it always will save you behind. All right. Let's see, who haven't we? Dr. Fruman. Okay, Dr. Fruman, you have a 19-year-old male motor vehicle collision victim. Uh, moderate speed struck a tree, 40-minute extraction time, unresponsive to verbal stimuli. What would you like to do? So you, you get this call from the, MIC, uh, the MICU nurse, um, not the MICU nurse, but the, the MICN nurse uh, from the radio. Uh, we're a call receiving center. So you get this call, and it's written on that little chalkboard that we have, the whiteboard. What's some of the things that's going through your head before you enter into this trauma? Okay, great. 
And some and some of the other things that are, uh, that probably are going through your head is you kind of you want to know a scene report, right? You want to know like what happened at the scene. So there you got a little bit of that. You got this 40-minute extraction time. They struck a tree, but obviously this guy didn't self-extricate because there's a 40-minute ex extraction time. But did, was he wearing his seatbelt? Did the airbags deploy? Was there spidering of the windshield? Was there any you know, any, you know, passenger space or, or, or driver space intrusion. These are the kind of things that kind of go through your head just to risk stratify where this person's injuries might be and, uh, and what else you might need to prepare. Um, you want a patient report, right? I mean, if you, this is all ideal. Sometimes we get them and sometimes we don't. But you want to know, hey, um, what are the patient's vital signs? Uh, what do they look like? What are they complaining of? You have a little bit of that. They're unresponsive to verbal stimuli, so that's always kind of bad news, right? When you have someone who's not really, really talking to you when you talk to them, that's always a little bad. So you know, you 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 responded to that by getting some other things prepared, including a respiratory therapist and maybe your airway equipment out, and you activated a trauma uh, activation, which was good. And then the pre-hospital treatment. So what do the medics do, right? So when the medics come in, sometimes you can get that information. Oftentimes you won't get it beforehand, but did they needle them? Did they check a glucose? Um, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is. Did they board and collar them? Um, what did they do? And that's always uh, important as well. So good. So moving on to the primary survey. What is the primary survey? Well, it is an extremely quick way to assess the patient in less than 10 seconds. So what's a very easy way to assess the patient when they first roll into your door? What's their name, right? Say, hey, sir, what's your name? So that's the easiest way. And what kind of information do we gather from that? The airway is patent. They're probably at least aerating one lung and breathing somewhat, and that they're mentating enough to actually talk back to you. Um, good. So good. So we have the airway that's available. They're breathing. Um, we have circulation. Um, and finally, we have disability, and we have exposure. So these are these are the basic basic components of the primary survey. Really, really. Uh, once again, this is a basic lecture. I want you guys to get the basics right. Now you'll all go through ATLS later. Um, many of you already have, but uh, I think the second years are all going to go through ATLs very shortly, and uh, this will be hammered home over and over and over again. All right. Speaking of airway, this patient, as they arrive, has an oral airway in place with rapid, shallow respirations. And you look at them, and the patient looks like they have some facial trauma. Any thoughts? Tube down. Looks like it's kind of a, you know, the, the mandible maxillary area, so it looks like some facial trauma. It looks, seem, seems to be slightly deformed, definitely macerated. Sounds like it's going to be a difficult airway. Okay, so good. So every trauma airway is a difficult airway, just so you guys know, because there's a collar involved in inline stabilization, which we'll talk about um, in, in just a bit. So um, let me ask Dr. Kim, uh, what, what would be our next step here? So, so you're, you're doing this all by yourself with one nurse and one tech. Okay. Obviously, in our department, we have many hands, and it's helpful, right? We do a lot of things in parallel, so there, things are going in parallel. But we're talking ATLS. We want to do things 
in sequence. So we don't miss major things. So we are intubating? Is that the decision has been made or not? So You're the doctor. Okay, so to <laughs> assess uh, PCS and whether it's eight or less. So let me, let, me, let, me, let me rewind a little bit. The patient has an oral airway in place, has rapid, shallow breathing. Okay. An oral airway in place and rapid, shallow breathing. Yes, you may decide to do a quick GCS. I don't think anyone would fault you because you're thinking, wow, um, maybe I need to get this information before I paralyze them so that I can kind of calculate how things are going to go down the road in terms of their mental status and their eventual outcome. So you can tell your neurosurgeons maybe down the road. But... So secure the airway. Secure the airway, right? That's what A is about, airway. A, secure the airway. Don't be scared. You can do this. We are the masters of the airway. We are the masters of resuscitation. So secure the airway. That's the first thing you want to do. Rapid, shallow respirations. He's not responding to verbal stimuli. Yeah, you could calculate the GCS. But mainly, if you're by yourself, secure the airway. Take care of that one element and secure them. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to intubate them? Talk me through it. So you got your suction ready, you got your respiratory therapist ready, and then you're pulling up what medications? And why did you choose Atomidate? Uh, so, pre, so one is uh, pre-medicate and one, one's uh, paralyzed. Right. Sedate. Sedate. Paralyzed. But why did you choose the Atomidate particularly? Uh, that's what I remember. I don't know. Okay. That's what I heard. All right. So, so, so Dr. Lee, why, why would you choose Atomidate? So Atomidate has very little, uh, if any, hemodynamic effects. Yeah, so it's a trauma patient, right? So we're a little bit worried about the hemodynamic effects uh, when you're sedating someone. Most of the other ones have some hemodynamic effects. Etomidate does too. They all do, but very, very, very minimal. So if they're hemodynamically unstable, this will do very little to change that. So good. So you do Etomidate and you decide to use succinylcholine. Wonderful. And, and then you're going to perform an intubation. And how are we doing that? So... On, uh, yeah, do we take the collar off? No. We don't. Uh, Dr. Weber, are we taking the collar off? Uh, we're going to need to unstrap the collar, but we'll have someone hold in line state. Okay, good. So, so, so I see this sometimes, not all the times, though. Some like, oh, I don't want to remove the collar. I'm going to try to intubate them with the collar on. Take the collar off. It gives you a little bit more laxity. I'm not saying we're going to crank and put them in the sniff position, but you can now do some simple things being simple and and it may just be all blood and soft tissue going back there and may give you a little time to just lift do a jaw thrust and a chin lift and that may give you a little more of the airway being open now it's probably not going to solve this person's problem but that could be the simple things being simple some suction and whatnot but we i know we kind of went over to intubation which eventually this person's going to need so i agree Take the collar off, but inline stabilization. And how is that performed? Dr. Paterna, how is inline stabilization performed? Yeah, but how? Can you describe it? I know it's, it's kind of hard to describe in words. 
But it can be done two ways, is what I'm trying to say. You can have someone crouch down next to you and put their hands across, their forearms across the patient's head and their hands on the patient's shoulder to kind of prevent any, any lateral or up and down movement of the neck. Or you could have someone from the patient's torso or feet on the side kind of holding inline stabilization. So that, those are two ways to do it. Either way, it kind of crowds the field. Um, but if they're going to do it from, from where you're at, the position you're at when you're intubating someone, you want them kind of crouched down and to the side. So that's, that's kind of essential. Okay, good. So you do inline stabilization, you do rapid sequence intubation with your succinylcholine and your automidate. I won't ask you the drug doses because we need to get through this lecture, but those are some things that you should, be, you should know uh, what doses to use. And then you intubate the patient. Great. So you intubated this patient, and <coughs> so you cleared the airway, you did a chin lift, a jaw thrust, you did suction, you maintained C-spine stabilization, um, and you assume a C-spine injury with anyone with head trauma. Yes, Dr. El Rafael. So this may be a little um, maybe detailed for this lecture, but I do have a question. You mentioned that you noticed that there was some mandibular or facial trauma. Mm -hmm. um, would you just, if there was any kind of facial trauma, would you assess first if you need to do an endotracheal intubation versus a nasotracheal, or how would you go about assessing that, if, especially if it's like they're decompensating right in front of you, because I imagine there's probably some risk if you like use a blade, you're gonna like fuck things up. <laughs> it's a good point. Uh, I think what you're trying to assess is this a difficult airway. I think yeah. we've established this is a difficult airway. We've also established that we have we want, to main, we want to establish a definitive airway rather quickly. So this is where you come into your adjuncts, and you certainly would get your glide scope, your bougie, and maybe even your crike kit out on the side. The question really is, are you going to paralyze this person or not? I probably would, although it is a risky business, right? Someone's breathing on their own, even though they're breathing shallowly, if that's even a word. Um, and, but, but certainly, they need a definitive airway. So it's a very good point that you bring up. Um, but most first pass attempts that are done uh, with a glide scope or with direct laryngoscopies are fairly successful with the use of paralytics. So I probably would paralyze this person, knowing that it's, it's not an easy, e even the best laid plan can be wrought with danger. And this one's one of them. So, is he, um, yes, sir. So you're alone? Yeah. And um, you make a decision paralyzed. Things don't go so well. Yeah. So, do you think there's room for attempting first before you paralyze somebody, unless it's a dire strait, to see if you can get to them? Attempting with an awake intubation, or uh, I think it's a case by case basis. I, I can't say for sure. Um, this is a choose your own adventure, which I'm trying to lead down a particular path. But uh, certainly, uh, I think it, it is under the discretion of the emergency physician whether you choose to use some other adjuncts such as uh, quote unquote direct um, awake intubation, for because sure. everybody understand the question? The, the, the point is, we're taking away the patient's ability to breathe. And if we run into trouble, that's problematic. But the key point is you want to make sure you can ventilate the patient, not necessarily intubate. And if you're using something short-acting like succinylcholine and there's a problem, so long as you can ventilate, it should wear off in five minutes. Now, Ron Walls would make a strong case against this, just try it. The reason being you want to optimize your intubating 
conditions. And if the patient is paralyzed, it's obviously a lot easier to intubate than if you're sitting there. I don't know how many of you have done an intubation where you can see the cords moving and you have to wait to pass the tube and, until they're open and so forth. So it is, of course, a case-by-case -case basis, and you want to be prepared with backup interventions in a way to be sure you can ventilate that patient because you are taking away the patient's ability to breathe. But the other side of the argument is you want to optimize intubating conditions, and the teaching in emergency medicine is certainly some of the people are strongly suggesting that paralyzing is going to optimize those intubating conditions. So if you have the skills and the backup and so forth, that that would be the way to go usually. Yeah, and, and Dr. Kading makes a good point. She mentioned Dr. Ron Walls, and I'm going to make another pitch to make sure you read his textbook on the difficult airway. He has a difficult airway course. Probably will be able to get it online, but it's a super, it's an ex excellent textbook, and it's a great course if you can ever go to it. And you should read some of his studies. He's, he's uh, our, our airway guru from, uh, from the Brigham, so you should definitely read his stuff. Okay, great. <clears throat> so you've intubated the patient, and you've established an airway. Now we're going to talk about breathing. So the respiratory tech uh, now says, Dr. Tuvi, that they are having a hard time bagging the patient. Damn. Damn. Where's Dr. McCoy? So they're saying, are you sure? <laughs> so, uh, so what do we do? We, are you, they're having a tough time bagging this patient. What is your? Breath sounds. Good. So what is your assumption here? Right. So now you hear breath sounds on the right, but you don't hear breath sounds on the left. Very good point, right? They're having a tough time bagging. Maybe the oxygen level comes up to the high 80s, just not quite up to the 90s. But um, So you're like, did, did I main stem this? So your next move might be to bring an ultrasound out and then do Art Yosefian study? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I can't say I'm, I'm too savvy with that, but uh, I, I, if someone taught me, I, I would do it. Yeah, pull the two back. So if you're at 23 or 4 at the teeth, you might pull it back a centimeter. Listen again. So you pull it back a couple of centimeters. You still don't hear any breath sounds on the left. Uh, pull it back some more, right? Okay. So, <clears throat> um, so you reposition. His pulse ox is still in the 80s. His blood pressure was, uh, what, what did I say it was? 80 over 40, is that what I said? No? That's unfortunate. You know, we had some limited information from the field. There is some blood on his face from all of his facial fractures, but how much blood was on the field? And can paramedics really estimate the amount of blood on the field? Who knows? Pam Swan, can they? She was a paramedic. The janitors, <laughs> the janitors do a better job than the paramedics, apparently. Okay. I know. That's the one I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Okay, so we needle the patient. Very reasonable, right? So we're like, okay, it's not a mucus plug. We've, you know, it's not, it's not main stem most likely because we're now at, you know, 20 at the teeth. And um, so now we're going to needle them. You kneel them and you get a rush of air back. And this is, someone read this chest x-ray for me. 
Dr. Sype? This looks like you probably get attention to a thorax on the left side. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and can you all see that? We see a little bit of shifting of the mediastinal structures. You see the clavicle kind of coming over here, but you see this other line over here? This is easier if it was bigger and the room was really dark and whatnot. And you see a ton of rib fractures right here, right? And obviously this arrow is pointing to them. So this, this is... This is the ultimate deep sulcus sign. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a really big... Yeah. Some of the other deep sulcuses we've seen in the last <clears> few weeks <throat> in conferences, I kind of got maybe this is a real one. Yeah. That costophrenic angle is cut off so far now. So are you going to yeah. comment on whether you should ever see a chest x-ray? <laughs> yeah, and this is my next point because this is something that is, you know, oftentimes you should never order a chest x-ray to diagnose attention pneumothorax. Does it happen sometimes? Sure. But uh, this is something that you don't want to happen. It's considered bad form to diagnosis by x-ray rather than Right. <laughs> okay, good. So where would you perform the needle work? That's a good point. In the recess room. <laughs> 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 or part of the so it's a good point. There's two places to put this. Um, maybe Dr. Langdorf can comment. Sometimes, I mean, oftentimes it's said to put it in the fourth intercostal space in the mid-axillary line. I've seen also that you can, quite frankly, put it in the, s the second intercostal space in the mid-clavicular line. A any thoughts, Dr. Langdorf? I do the latter. Okay. So I was taught um, you're going to end up putting a chest tube in the other spot, but, but it's just easiest to go straight anterior and decompress it. Also, it enables you to hear the rush of air easier if you're putting it lateral. You know, I hear it, but I hear mm -hmm. as opposed to just putting it there and you can hear, hear the rush of air easier. Mm -hmm. The other point is really to make sure you have the long enough needle. Some people are, you know, they have a lot of subcutaneous fat or very muscular, and you want to make sure you have a long enough needle and you want a, a big needle. 14 gauge or something like that. So you really want to make sure you get into the pleura. All right, good. And you always hear a rush of air, like Dr. Langdorf would say, because when you put in, whether you're right or wrong, you're going to hear a rush of air, right, guys? Yes. Okay. I'm using Dr. Langdorf's line. Have like a finger thoracotomy? A finger thoracotomy. Instead of using the needle, you just cut with the scalpel and then it's basically like... Never. No. Can't say that I have. Have you? No, no, I've heard about it. Yeah. No, I haven't. Just to kind of release it because you're on your way to putting it in a chest tube anyways. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't even seen it in the ATLS book, so I don't know if that's something that's kind of newer yeah, or something. Yeah. The question is how fast can you do it? If you can, if you can whip in it, you know, get, if you can puncture the pearl space in the first 30 seconds of your chest tube, then do you really need to needle it? Maybe not, but we generally needle and then follow the chest tube. So once again, check the position of the ET tube. You're, you're having a hard time bagging the patient. Check the ET tube, initiate needle decompression once you've repositioned it, and then place the chest tube. All the kind of stuff that we've covered. All right, now the patient's blood pressure is 110 over 74, and the heart rate is 112. Dr. Mordazavi, so what class of hemorrhagic shock is this patient in? I know, I have given you very limited information. Class 2, why do you say that? Okay, good. So in class one, we don't see really any vital sign abnormalities whatsoever. Right, yeah, so class one's minimal blood loss. Class two is you're starting to have some vital signs changes. Which ones? Uh, mostly your heart rate and not so much blood pressure. If you see any blood pressure changes, what would it be? I think that would be class three. 
Well, I guess what I'm trying. Oh, like what changes would you see? Right. Oh. If the, if you thought it was class two, but you didn't see a systolic blood pressure change, but you might see a narrowing of the pulse pressure. And how do we calculate the pulse pressure? You guys all know. Yeah. Good. And what is a normal pulse pressure? Yeah, I mean, it just depends. Yeah, 30, 40, some people say, but it's 25% of the systolic blood pressure. So it's a, in a rough guide or so. Okay, good. So now, oh, you saw this already. I didn't know. Yeah, Maybe you did. Like okay, good. <laughs> that was already up there. Two large bore IVs, right? Two large bore IVs. Type and cross the patient. And in class two, hemorrhage, we are going to infuse crystalloids, right? Normal saline or lactated ringers. <laughs> All right, good. And then when we get to class three and four, you want to you move to your colloids, pack red blood cells, namely. Okay, very good. And then obviously, you want to recheck the patient to see where the hemorrhage is coming from. Remember, we're still doing our ABCDs. We haven't, even, we haven't moved past the primary survey yet, okay? Insert a Foley and monitor the urine output. There's a little caveat to that we'll get to in a second. All right, D is for disability. Uh, Dr. Jen, are you here? Oh, good. So um, this patient has spontaneous, uh, has, sorry, open eyes only to painful uh, stimuli. Uh, the pupils, uh, uh, so sorry, he withdraws to painful stimuli, and he's uh, intubated and cannot speak. So what is this GCS? Okay. Well, he he's got a tube down his throat. He opens it to painful stimuli only. Okay, good. And if you want to be technical, you put the dash the T, T which is intubated. Great. So he's intubated now. You've done the disability portion. Um, and, uh, you know, Dr. Kim had a good idea about doing the GCS in parallel with his ABCDs, <laughs> which is good because now you've intubated him. You've taken away one element of his GCS score. We never know what his real GCS was when he first came in. Maybe the medics gave you that information. I'm not really sure. But a good idea. If, if you have the help to do it, uh, go ahead and do it. Um, so here's where you consider getting a head CT, a C-spine CT, and then your neurosurgeon on the horn. Unless they're extremely intoxicated, something's obviously wrong with this person. So they're probably going to have some sort of intracranial hemorrhage is the most likely next step. So you might wait for your head CT, or you might just get them on the horn anyways, because if it takes 20 minutes to get a hold of them, if you're working somewhere else and you need to uh, do that, or if you're considering transferring, you may get the transfer, your hospital transfer center on the phone and say, look, it's most likely this patient is about to leave. Get your transfer center people on the horn, making some phone calls. Um, and so this is, this is when you start thinking about that. All right, check the pupils. Um, sometimes you can do that before you intubate them. And paralyze them. Paralytics last about, you know, their half-life's about five or six minutes. So in, in about 10, 15 minutes, it should be completely out their system. And uh, this one, this person will definitely need a... 
succinylcholine, <clears throat> to be exact. Okay, environment and exposure. Uh, I just want to really reiterate what Dr. Ibrahim said. Completely undress the patient. I think Dr. Pitts said that last week too. Because you never know what you're going to find. I can, I can say that I haven't really found much in terms of spinal hematomas or back hematomas. But you'll be surprised what you find. And you need to completely undress the patient but keep them warm. Um, you, we all know about the terrible triad in, in uh, trauma, which is a hypothermia and uh, hypercoagulable state and acidosis. We want to prevent that. Use your, uh, your warmers um, when you're fluid resuscitating patients as well. Once again, you're going to log roll the patient. Um, and if you log roll this patient, you would see some ecchymosis around the lumbar area, which would signal you to maybe get some additional uh, diagnostic tests. All right. Adjuncts to primary survey. So what, what are the, some of the things that we order? Well, we would probably order an EKG or a pulse oximetry. It goes without saying, but just remember that. Chest x-ray and pelvis films, not always necessary, but in this patient, probably their multi-system trauma, and we're not sure what's going on with the patient, where the hypotension is coming from. We presume it was from a tension pneumothorax, but uh, there still could be other injuries uh, because uh, obviously the patient's pretty sick. A Foley catheter, really consider putting in a Foley catheter. We'll talk about the contraindications to putting in a Foley catheter. And an NG tube. Um, now, uh, in ATLS, they really uh, say use an OG tube um, just because if there's facial fractures, um, you know, there's, there's some misbelief that the NG tube will end up in the brain. I don't think that is really true, but um, you might as well put it uh, down the oral pharynx instead of the nasopharynx. ABG, I think, is important, especially in a sick patient. Um, I, I think a lot of folks get ABGs in our department that probably don't need them. But in someone who's intubated or someone who's hypotensive, I would say make sure you look at the base deficit. Okay? This is a, this is a very cursory view of trauma. I can, each one of these has its own lecture, so I'm just covering the basics. Okay? There's, there's more to come down the road. So what is the secondary survey? Yes? Well, the real reason the base deficit is important is because your hemoglobin or your hematocrit takes a little while to change, right? So it shows tissue hypoxemia. And tissue hypoxemia is really, in trauma, is, is hemorrhage. So you can, ga you can gauge how well you're doing with your resuscitation. Um, we always yell out, oh, hemoglobin, hemoq is such and such. And I, I can honestly say I don't think I've ever paid attention to that number. Um, it's completely worthless because it takes at least 20 minutes for you to have any drop in your hemoglobin. <laughs> Unless it's four to begin with, yes. And they syncopize along the way and was struck by lightning. <laughs> so, so now um, your secondary survey. When do you do a secondary survey? First, do the primary survey. Then start your resuscitation. Then you have relatively stable vital signs. Okay. So primary survey, resuscitation, normal vital signs, move on to the secondary survey. Now, this doesn't happen here that way because we have a lot of hands. We have two or three physicians, we have um, techs and nurses, and we have a lot of help. But if you were alone or were, there's multiple traumas coming in and we're spread thin um, and you know, we have a mass casualty incident, this is something to really consider. And you're like, oh my goodness, I'm an intern. I'm only an intern. Well, 
These are the things to kind of think about. Always go back to the basics, okay? Get help, of course. I know but we're not talking about research till next hour, but do you think a good research project would be looking at whether the bedside hemoglobin in trauma patients changes management or perhaps we should stop doing it? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Except resources, risk of needle sticks. I agree. Uh, I don't know what's out there already, but that's a, that's a good point. Very good point. So now um, the patient's vital signs are 100 over 70, heart rate's 100, uh, they're mechanically ventilated, and the urine output increased um, by about 10 mLs. Okay? So here's, a, here's where you would reevaluate your ABCDs and get an ample history. Uh, I think Dr. Ray kind of uh, illustrated the ample history um, during the M&M. &M. Uh, essentially, it's, it's just a mnemonic that says, do you have any allergies? What's, you know, your, your medications that you're on? What's your past medical history? What's your last meal? Um, and kind of the events ease, the events leading up to the trauma. So what do you remember? What happened? Oh, I don't remember anything. I was driving and all of a sudden, the next thing I know, I hit a tree. Did you see the tree coming? Was it dark? No, I don't know. I, but I have this heart condition, doc. You know, okay. So now we're talking about a syncope that caused the motor vehicle collision. So the events leading up to the actual um, trauma. Moving on to the secondary survey. I have about a few minutes, so I'm going to zip through this. Remember that your physical exam, there are some times where I, you know, I, I really don't believe in a physical exam. But when, when the patient's not telling you very much, it's a good time to do a very good physical exam, especially in trauma patients, nursing home patients. When they're febrile and you're not sure where, you know, it's good to do a skin exam. Make sure they don't have a sacral decube or cellulitis or necrotizing fasciitis. And in the same way in trauma patients, gosh, the, yeah, they're concentrating. You're concentrating on their pneumothorax and their tension, uh, maybe their splenic laceration. But eventually, when you get to the secondary survey, you've got to make sure you don't miss the hyphema, and you'll probably get this on a CT scan that they have a basal skull fracture. This is a battle sign. But really make sure you go back and you really examine the patient. Once again, here we're on a little bit on autopilot because we have the trauma service uh, doing a lot of this stuff. But I just encourage you to make, sh to make sure you feel like these patients are yours. And, you know, I, I know oftentimes you have, we have the comfort of knowing someone else is doing it. But you'll be surprised that um, there will be a piece of glass you know, in the scalp and someone will sew it up or something like that and boy, that patient goes home and then they need to come back, they use resources, they get an infection, they sue the hospital, your name's on the record, you know, it's like, it just just be cognizant of stuff like that. Can't be perfect all the time, but it's always nice to have a backup system. There's also a discussion about having us take care of more trauma patients without directly involving the trauma team, so I suspect in the future we're going to be doing a lot of this primarily. Mm -hmm. Dr. Zamonia? Can I just make a quick point to the interns? Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. BC made a very good point about just getting a history of what happened to the patient from the medics and from any family members. Another thing to watch out for is to see if, they, if there's any evidence that they had a seizure while they were driving, any tongue lacerations, or if they're post-ictal, because then you should definitely write a note to the DMV regarding the driving record and, of course, do a seizure workup. That would involve neurology, but just something to keep in mind. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, we, I think our job takes on a lot and a lot more and a lot more but, you know, just think about if you want that person driving home and you have a family member and they collide into them and then it's Dunsky, you know, you don't want that to happen. So for their safety and for everyone else, the public, public health safety. So we talked about all of this, perform an adequate eye exam and all whatnot. So, you know, the neck, um, who haven't we picked on? Dr. Simonian. Yes. What's going on here? So they have a, they have a seat belt 
abrasion on their neck, and then you examine them, they look like this. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Very good. So sometimes that can affect the carotids, right? Even minor injury to the carotid area. Just uh, I, does this happen a lot? No. I'm I'm just throwing it out there to keep all of you um, R3s and stuff a little engaged into this lecture. But just what I'm saying is make sure you do a nice exam. The chest, um, <coughs> flail chest, is uh, anyone know the definition of a flail chest? Dr. Wu? You have a Yeah, good. So they say two or three ribs kind of in the same area that's broken. Great. And then uh, what's a massive hemothorax? I think Dr. Davis spoke of this last time. The yeah, so the... Right. So greater than 1,500 mLs, well, as soon as you put the chest tube in for a massive hemothorax, or greater than 200 to 300 mLs over several hours, then you wonder if there's some great vessel injury or a larger vessel, and so you might need a thoracotomy up in the OR. Okay? Little tidbits. Abdomen, um, you know, here you can see a seatbelt sign, um, chest abrasion, and, and a lap belt sign here. You know, perform your FAST exam. DPLs, this is in ATLS, okay? It's still taught. Uh, you will go through, we took you guys through um, a DPL uh, in the cadaver lab, but you're going to do another one when you do ATLS, but just well, no one's ever done these in the recent history in the United States. <laughs> That's not true, but in, in UC Irvine probably. The FAST exam should be part of the secondary survey, is that what you're saying? Yes. Not, not the primary. No. Even though sometimes we end up yeah. doing FAST exams before we put an IV in, which is out of order. Right. Pelvis and perineum, you know, uh, once again, pelvic instability, it's pretty easy. You just grab um, both sides of the pelvis and you squish inwards. You want it done just once, so whoever's going to do it, just have it done once. Because if, if you suspect a pelvic injury, you don't want to keep crunching down on the pelvis to potentially, you know, loosen up a clot. <laughs> and uh, so... Um, once again, you know, we talk about when to put a Foley catheter uh, in or when not to put a Foley catheter in. And this is, there's some indications that ATLS uh, speaks about. Um, and uh, that's when you have blood at the meatus, you have an inability to void, you have a pelvic, uh, unstable pelvic fracture, um, you have a scrotal hematoma or perineal hematoma, um, and, then a, and then again, the high riding, quote unquote, high riding prostate, not able to feel a prostate, and your suspicion's pretty high, and that's to make sure that you don't. Do a urethral transection and worsen things. Yes. So what is it? I never felt the best of pelvis. What is it? What am I looking for? It just feels like give. You just go, <laughs> and then you sometimes you you don't hear, but you almost feel like a crunch. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever done? Have you ever chopped like a piece of chicken or something like that at home? Yeah. Yeah. It's you know like when you kind of crunch that bone together, sometimes. You guys didn't like that analogy. All right, musculoskeletal, just really remember to undress the patient. Once again, long bone fractures can be a source of hypotension. And, um, and that's about it. So in summary, I know this is very brief. I wanted to keep it brief and basic. And um, perform your ABCDs. 
Move on to the secondary survey. After the primary survey, this is obviously when you have limited resources and vital signs. Again, make sure they're stable. Perform a thorough physical exam. I try to give you guys a brief synopsis of the physical exam on the secondary survey. And uh, I have a few questions for you. A stab wound patient who has a blood pressure of 80 over 60 and a heart rate of 125 and has a decreased urine output has what class of shock? Mm -hmm. By the way, we're working on automating or iPadding this whole process too, so there won't be any papers. Dr. Simonian is, uh, and I are going to work on this and have a way you can go doot, 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 and have an audience response system, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Doot, 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 doot. <laughs> All right, question number two. An intoxicated head trauma victim opens his eyes to pain, opens his eyes to pain, withdraws to pain, and makes incomprehensible noises. What is her GCS? Oh, I said his and then her. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, y'all did get her gender mixed up a little. Yeah. All right. Question number three. Which of the following is a contraindication to placing a Foley catheter? So this is. I have one. Uh, sorry, uh, is not a contraindication. Sorry. Yes, which of the following is not a contraindication if you guys are watching this lecture at home? To placing a bullet. Yes, sir. This might be a little semantic, but yeah. when you're doing the, the classes of blood loss, Yes. And then urine That's a good point. I think it's it's something to follow over a period of time. If they're not with us for that long, immediately in the first 15 minutes, they're going to have no assessment of the urine output. But this is over a period of a few hours in which initially everyone gets normal saline or lactated ringers, right? And then you go, well, what's they're getting more hypotensive. It's something um, that you should keep track of on a practical sense. Do we use it a lot? No. Uh, will it be on a test? Maybe. Over the whole period of time. Correct. Correct. Yes. All right, this is a bonus question, and this is the hardest question. So if, if anyone gets this right, uh, you can become an attending. <laughs> Nobody knows them. Oh, my God. You forgot who Arthur is? Cooper's Cooper. Cooper's birthday is next week. It is. Are you going? Um, I can't. I'm on nights. Oh, okay. All right, any questions? I'm going to stop here. If you guys have any questions now or later. You guys ever have an hour laters? I love those.